0: I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 27. I'm going to start in verse 45. Reading out of the New King James Version. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard this said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two top to bottom and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons.
1: Every single one of us is going to have to stand before God one day and give an answer for what we have seen and what we said about the cross of Jesus. The Bible tells us that it's appointed a man once to die and after that the judgment, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. The Bible says that Jesus told us and told his disciples that if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And what we have to do and what we have to reconcile with and what we have to deal with as Christians is how do we see and what do we say about the cross of Jesus We've been taking the last several weeks, barring except for last week, of course, when I was absent, we've been taking the last several weeks and looking uh, intensely at the cross of Jesus, and we'll continue to do that for the next several weeks, especially as we uh, move forward and look at some different parties and what they said about the cross as they were there on that occasion. Next week, Lord willing, we'll take a look at the women that surrounded the cross of Jesus and what they saw and what they said about the cross of Jesus. The following week, again, Lord willing, we'll take a look at what men who were surrounding the cross saw in it and what they said about it. But this morning, I want you to submit for you to consider for us as we look at the cross is that as we look at the miracles surrounding the cross and the death of Jesus, what you see in the miracles is what God said about the cross. It's amazing to me that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can go in those books and we can learn the historical facts that Jesus did die upon a cross. And yet at the same time, what we have to do is we have to go into the book of Acts and we have to go into Romans and 1st uh, and 2nd Corinthians and all in the rest of the books of the New Testament for those writers to offer commentary about the significance of what we read here in Matthew 27 about the cross of Jesus. But as we look at the cross itself, we have to realize that there are men that are saying things about it at the, on that occasion, about the death of Jesus. There are women who are there who are saying things about the death of Jesus. But in the miracles that we see here at, at, at the cross in Matthew 27, we see what God says about the death of Jesus on the cross. There are a couple of things that are significant that I believe are noteworthy. For us, as we begin our study here in Matthew 27, verses uh, 45 and following, the scripture was read for us just a moment ago. As we look at the cross, I want you to notice a couple of things that the miracles talk about. When we use the term miracle, we're using the term as God suspending the natural law in order to tell something, in order to teach something. God is suspending natural law and natural order in order for him to offer commentary. It's amazing to me that all throughout the life of Jesus, The commentary that God is offering throughout the life of Jesus are his miracles. The power that he's able to use by the hand of God, by the power of God, which God did through him, as Peter would say in Acts chapter 2. Those things, God is offering commentary on who Jesus is throughout his life. But now, even at Jesus' death, what we find is that God is offering commentary to us about the death of his son and about how he sees that. And there's a couple of significant things that I think we need to consider as we look at the cross this morning. The first thing is this. Friends, there were very few people on that occasion that understood the gravity, the significance of what was happening to Jesus there on the cross. There were very few people that had an instance and an inkling of of the gravity of that situation. And what's amazing about God is that the miracles on this occasion really punctuate that. About the fact that there are people that are looking around And yet there are a few that are asking the question, is this really the Son of God that we've just put up on the cross? The second thing is, is the extraordinary nature of the miracles here at the death of Jesus. What would have been even more incredible and what would have been even more astounding is if there had been zero miracles at the cross. I think the extraordinary nature of these four that we're going to look at this morning says something again about God and about what he sees in the cross of Jesus But thirdly, I think as we get started in this lesson this morning, what's maybe most significant about this and about looking at the cross of Jesus is this. God is a God of power. And God is a God of infinite power and infinite wisdom. And what astounds me about this is that God can compel men through his miracles and through his power to stop and to take a look around and try and understand, but God doesn't Force anybody's hand in order to believe in him. God can arrest our attention by the miracles that we see here in Scripture, but never do you find God slapping somebody upside the head with that miracle and grabbing their hand and causing them to be obedient. God allows us to see the evidence for his authority, for his sovereignty. And yet God never forces anybody to be obedient and to kneel before his authority and his sovereignty. I think those three things ought to serve well as we begin to talk about studying the miracles at the cross, what God said about the cross through his miracles. Let's look at these four together this morning. Number one, we're going to be looking at the cross as a place of darkness The cross is a place of darkness. Matthew 27 and verse 45, it says that there was darkness over all the land from the sixth hour till the ninth hour. You remember the Romans judged time or dealt with time a little bit differently than we do. They would start with 6 a.m. being the first hour. And so 9 a.m. would be the third hour. 12 p.m. would be the sixth hour. And 3 p.m. would be the ninth hour. And what Matthew is telling us, there is darkness that's over the land from 12 p.m. all the way until 3 p.m. And speaking about the rotation of the earth and the moon and all those things, there are a couple of things that are just striking about this, first of all. And some people might say, well, Andy, that could have been just a natural occurrence. Not if you understand something about the time of the Passover. A couple of verses for you to jot down. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 6. Exodus 12 and verse 6. In Exodus 12 and verse 2, what scholars tell us about the Jewish religion is that the Jewish religion follows a lunar cycle, and where you find the Passover occurring is always at the time of a full moon. If Passover always occurs at the time of the full moon, there is no way that there could have been a naturally occurring eclipse happening here in Matthew 27. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Passover was based upon a lunar cycle and therefore you don't find the sun and the moon being the position where there was a naturally occurring solar eclipse. That's something that's significant to me and it's really ironic in a lot of respects. When you find God recounting the history of Israel and going back to his high water mark of what he had done for Israel, you know what God would always, almost always go back to whenever he would talk through the law and through the prophets? You remember how I bore you out on eagles' wings from Egypt. You remember how I, through the death of the firstborn there in Egypt, brought you out by a mighty hand out from under Pharaoh. At the time of year, the Passover, where God's grace should have been shining brightest, what's amazing here is on this particular Passover, there was nothing but darkness. From 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. That's really ironic to me. It's something that's, of course, attention-getting. I don't know how many of you remember, but North America had a solar eclipse back in 2018. Two minutes, about 41 seconds, as I recall. We were over in the Smoky Mountains during that time, and we were at a polishing a pulpit. It was in August, I recall. And everybody, nobody was listening to lessons. Everybody was outside because they wanted to see the solar eclipse and, and watch the crazy shadows on the ground. And at the time that the, moon, or the sun was completely obscured by the moon, it was amazing because there was silence. I cannot imagine for three hours, darkness over all the land and the silence that would cause somebody to look up and say, what in the world happened? In fact, there are Roman scholars that have recorded this event. Tertullian, a Christian apologist writing about 200 AD, believe it or not, says you can go back and you can look in the Roman uh, annals and the Roman chronicles and realize that there was at this time, at the time of the Passover during this year, a eclipse, a supernatural event. And we look at this and we say, yeah, darkness over the land for three hours is significant. But how is this God perhaps speaking about the death of Jesus? There are a couple of ways that this miracle might be significant to us. Realize this. Number one, it's as if creation itself is sympathizing with the death of the Creator. Jesus is the Word, Jesus is the power of God to create. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that by him, everything was made that was made. Without him, there was nothing that was made that was made. Jesus, being the creative force and the creative word and the creative power of God, spoke everything into existence. God, by his mighty hand, spoke together. And we have the result, which is the creation. And now, the creator has come down, taking on the form of man and is dying in the midst of his creation. It's almost as if creation sympathizes with what's going on here at the cross. It could be that the darkness here on this occasion was a veil to cover the shame and the nakedness of Jesus. Once again, Roman crucifixion didn't leave a person with dignity. It wasn't about saying, okay, how can we make this man die in a dignified way, and how can we hold on to his integrity, and how can we make sure that he's, he's covered properly? There was none of that. Roman crucifixion was designed to be the most pain, the most shame, and the most humiliation as possible. It's almost as if the darkness is there to cover the shame and the nakedness, the suffering of Jesus. It could be a commentary based upon what God is speaking about with regard to the, uh, the murderers of Jesus. The darkness of men, where God's grace should have been shining brightest, now you have the darkness of men through his people executing this crime. What I believe personally, and take this for what it's worth, is that the darkness is directly connected somehow to what Jesus said there in verse 46. Remember that connected to this, there was darkness from the sixth hour all the way to the ninth hour, and being the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brothers and sisters, I've got to tell you, there is not a person alive that can tell us the significance and the full weight and the full meaning of what happened there to Jesus on Calvary at this moment. There's not a single one of us that can experience and say, I felt that to the fullest extent that Jesus did. Realize that what Jesus is doing is pulling from an Old Testament passage, Psalm 22 and verse 1, and applying that to his current situation. We sing the song sometimes that, that, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And it talks about the Father turning his face away from the Son. That he who knew no sin became sin for us as we look at the cross and we see the darkness, we have to understand that there is something significant happening to Jesus here where he's experiencing on this occasion what he came to save us from. Do you realize that living in this life, you have never been forsaken by God? It may feel like that. Not to the extent that Jesus has. It may feel like that, but every single one of us living here in this life and in this world are recipients and beneficiaries of God's goodness. This the nature of our creation. God created this world good, and when we can go out on a beautiful spring day and feel the sunshine on our shoulders and feel the nice cool breeze, and, and, and I mean, there's not too many days like that, but you understand that you can go out and you can experience the beauty of creation We understand that God is still present and God is still working in this world and God is still active. But when Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 and verse 1, that he's been forsaken by God. I believe the darkness offers commentary on what Jesus experienced. God's commentary on the cross begins with the darkness. Miracle number two, The cross is a place of sacrifice. Verse 51. Look back at your Bible. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, verse 50, and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. We'll deal with the second part of that here in just a moment. The veil of the temple was torn in two. A couple things about this veil. You remember then Herod's temple complex? He had really expanded the temple and the uh, outer court and everything commentators tell us about this veil this this separating this giant curtain and what you're going to read when you read about the veil is this that the veil was some 60 feet tall 60 feet tall I was trying to reckon reckon this this morning and please forgive me if I, I blow this look up just for a second that's okay look up don't hurt your neck but just look up you see the apex up here in the top of this auditorium I'm guessing, and we can get Roy up on the lift here in just a little while to, to figure this out, but I'm guessing that that's about 50 feet tall. Maybe 60, I don't know. I'm not very good with uh, judging distances. That seems like it's about right. About 50 feet tall on the top of this. Add 10 more feet on top of that and you're there at 60 feet tall for the veil of the temple. Bible, or the, uh, the commentators tell us, 60 feet tall curtain was also 30 feet wide. Again, not judging distances very well, but I'm looking over here at the corner of the stage and I'm looking over here to the other side of the stage. That seems like to me about 30, maybe 35, maybe 40 feet. It's not just that it was 60 feet tall. It's not just that it was 30 feet wide, but they're also going to tell us that this piece of fabric, this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was four inches thick. Look at these beams. I'm guessing the beams are probably about five inches thick. Maybe six. I have a hard time visualizing a piece of fabric that's that thick. When I was in high school, we had this um, these group of strongmen that came. Maybe you had the same thing at your high school. But these guys would take phone books, like big massive phone books are, are where we used to have to go before we went, had Google. They would take these, these phone books and they would rip these phone books in half. And I remember thinking about the power that it took to do that. Can you imagine a piece of fabric, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide? The historical records tell us it took 300 priests full to get, them, get, that, to get that veil into place. And having at the death of Jesus, this fabric, this veil being ripped from top to bottom. This is not something that an ordinary human could do. This is not the work of one man that could just stand on a ladder like Roy does sometimes in this auditorium and try and rip this thing from top to bottom. This is a matter of a commentary of what God is saying about the death of Jesus. And can you imagine being there in the temple on that occasion, being ministering there in the holy place, Maybe taking care of the showbread, maybe taking care of the, uh, the, 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 the lampstand and making sure it's got enough oil and all those things. And after this extreme darkness that you've just experienced, now you hear a tearing, a ripping. A sound that you can't quite comprehend is going on. And a priest coming running out of that temple and saying, you'll never believe what just happened. This failed. This massive piece of fabric has just been ripped in two and I saw it from top to bottom going and being open. Now I can see directly into the most holy place. Can you believe that? How do you deal with something like that? How do you come to grips with something like that? We don't have to guess as far as the significance of this miracle. Turn to your Bibles, please. Hold your finger here in Matthew 27. We'll be back in just a moment. Turn to your Bible, please, to these passages here in Hebrews. They're all right here together and we could take a look at them. Jot them down if you'd like, but turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. Once again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record the historical significance of the death of Jesus. The New Testament writers give us the understanding, they connect the dots for us about how these things are significant. Notice Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7. Talking about the tabernacle and talking about the temple, And the writer says, But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. Let me explain what's going on here. As you look at the tabernacle proper, you had the holy place and this massive veil, this this big piece of fabric here in in, in, uh, Herod's temple. And it separated the holy place from the most holy place. There was only one man allowed to go one time a year into the most holy place to make atonement for the people. And that was the high priest. In fact, tradition tells us that what would happen is is that if the high priest made a mistake in there and for some reason he, he did something wrong or he went with the wrong attitude or maybe he wasn't ritually clean, God could strike him dead and then the question becomes, how can we go in there and pick him out, pull him out? And so what they would say traditionally that they would do is tie a rope around his ankle so that as he went in there and they had a bell on him so they could hear them moving around in there, but if he was happened to mess up in the presence of God's holiness and was struck dead. They could just pull on that rope and pull him out because it was not lawful for anybody to go. And as if that weren't enough, upon the veil, the the object that we're talking about, there were cherubim, winged creatures, that were sewn into the fabric with arms outspread as if to say, you have no business here. This is restricted access. Do not come this way. There's something about them guarding God's holiness not only here, but also on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. You would have the cherubim with their arms outstretched showing and covering the mercy seat, showing there's something special about what you're doing. And it was only one time a year that the high priest was allowed to go behind that veil into the presence of God uh, where the Ark of the Covenant sat and where the mercy seat sat on top. And as he would sprinkle the blood of that goat and make atonement for the people and for the congregational sins, that happened one time a year. What the Hebrews writer says is here's our high priest Jesus and what Jesus did was make a way so that we could come and we could stand behind the veil that we could be brought near by the blood of Jesus it wasn't with the imperfect blood of bulls and goats that he came into the most holy place making atonement he came with his own blood he offered that sacrifice which we so needed and which the law of Moses was pointing towards and he did that one time for all And what's going on here at the cross is this, that veil being torn top to bottom as if no longer to say no access, but there's access for all. And that's the beautiful picture of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, to say that we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with us, but he was all points tempted, just like we were, yet without sin. And the answer that he says is, Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. That's a picture of us going in behind the veil and standing in the place where Jesus has made the way. Christians, this is a reason to rejoice and to think about the significance of what happened here at Calvary because this veil being torn uh, from top to bottom is not the work of man. It is the work of the Savior that died on the cross. It's God's commentary to say, no longer is that old system restrictive. Now we all have access and we all have bold access to come before the Father. Miracle number three the cross is a place of significance. Matthew 27, verse 51 there was an earthquake, a great earthquake, as Jesus yielded up his spirit. There is a miracle of an earthquake, violent enough, it says, to split rocks apart. And there are some that have tried to explain this away, saying, you know, that's just, a, that's just a, a, a coincidence that that happened. No, the timing of it convinces us that this was a miracle. Once again, as if the darkness was not arresting, I do know that there were still some people that were going to and fro, you know, whenever that, uh, that eclipse was happening back in 2018. But I tell you what, you go and you talk to somebody that's maybe come from California or maybe lives in California... And there is something that whenever that earth begins to shake, you begin to go and look for a door frame. You begin to run outside and try and find a place that's, that's stable enough to, for you to stand and be able to withstand it. That will bring your life to a halt, won't it? Those of you that have been through an earthquake. And it's amazing to me to think about the earth shaking and not being anywhere where you can find a, stabi- a stability. You can try and hold on to something, but that thing is holding on and that sh- thing is shaking just as much as you are there's a miracle of an earthquake on this occasion and there's the significance about this when you go back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19 just before the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 what you find is God reaching down his hand and saying Israel here's what I've done I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings Pharaoh said get out and that's by my power And God says, now, if you're going to listen to me, if you're going to obey my voice, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be a special people to me, a special treasure above all the earth, a holy nation, a holy priesthood. Israel, do you want this? And Israel says, yes, we want this. God has offered terms of a covenant, a sacred relationship, a sacred contract with Israel. And as Moses tells the people, here's what you're going to do. You're going to cleanse yourselves. You're going to purify yourselves. Because on the third day, the Lord's going to come down and he's going to come down on Sinai. He's going to give you the laws and the commandments of this covenant. You know what was happening there at Sinai on that occasion as God gave the first covenant? It's the fact that the mountain was covered in darkness. And it said that the mountain shook and quaked violently, greatly. There's a significance of the new covenant being ushered in here with this earthquake because what God does by his judgment is he shakes the heavens and the earth. It may be absolutely that God is offering commentary to say now is the time where we're transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. Hebrews would say that you can't have a testament that's in effect unless you have the death of the testator. Somebody that offers their last will and testament like Jesus did to say this is my new testament, my new covenant required his death, and God offering the shaking on this occasion. It could also be a commentary about the wrath of God, the wrath of God being poured out for the sins of so many. And the psalmist, in a number of different places, talks about God's wrath shaking things. The whole earth shook and was troubled. The foundations of the hills quaked and were shaken because the Lord was angry, Psalm 18 and verse 7 nahum chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 talk about the mountains that quake and shake before him god lets us know exactly how he feels about the cross as the creation was shaken at the death of jesus god was present on that occasion at the death of the son it is a significant event last miracle to look at this morning is number four the cross being a place of confidence and a place of assurance Cross being a place of confidence and a place of assurance. After the veil of the temple was torn in two, verse 51, after the earthquakes and the rocks were split, verse 52, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went in the holy city and appeared to many. The way that I understand the timeline going based upon this, in the same vein as The veil of the temple being torn, as the earth being shaken, so also you have the graves opening. And it seems like for three days, we don't know what happened to these bodies. We can look and we can see the graves are opened, but where are the bodies? And after his resurrection there on that Sunday, now you have people that are going into, raised saints that are going into the houses of those and appearing to those people that were witnesses on that occasion. Where were the bodies? I believe the same place Jesus was. God found a place for them. And again, later, coming back and affirming the resurrection of Jesus. Can you imagine this just for a moment? Maybe you were one of those Pharisees. Maybe you were one of those scribes. Maybe you were one of those leaders of the Jews that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. You realize that less than a week earlier, Jesus was saying that you who are adorning the temple or the uh, the monuments, the, the gravestones of these prophets... And saying, if we were alive in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have crucified this, we wouldn't have killed these people. And Jesus saying, Well, you're testifying that you're the sons of those people that killed the prophets. And he lists two of them he says, The blood of Abel. And he also talks about Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, who they killed between the altar and between the temple. Can you imagine Zechariah sitting there in your house as you're trying to make your morning coffee? And you were maybe one of the ones that had been saying, well, that man deserves to die. Can you imagine those people, the saints who had died, going and appearing to not only the priests, the Levites, the ones who were so hard-hearted to Jesus, but also perhaps some of the ones that weren't sure what to think about the death of Jesus, and maybe some of the ones that, that just needed that shot and that boost to know that Jesus was the Son of God. Now you have them going in and appearing and making appearances in different houses. That's something really to think about with regard to that. And as we look at this miracle and the significance of this, is this number one, John 11:11, Jesus talking about the death of Lazarus, says, we're going to go see my friend Lazarus. And he says, he's fallen asleep and we're going to go wake him up. The first thing that I want to notice about this miracle is this God knows where those who have died in Christ are, where those saints are. It's not a mystery. It's not God sitting up in heaven scratching his head and wondering, Where are my faithful? I know that they were buried around here somewhere. You, know, you ever go into a cemetery and do that sometimes? You're looking for somebody's gravestone, particularly, and you can't find it. There's, it's among all these. God knows where they are. And the power of Jesus. And Jesus saying in John chapter 5, Behold, the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth to those who have done good, to the resurrection of life, to those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation or judgment. And as Jesus talks about that, surely, surely he might have thought of this occasion where in a very limited capacity you have the saints being raised being absent for three days and then beginning to appear to those people there in Jerusalem after his resurrection. Friends, there's coming a time where the most busy place on earth will be the cemeteries that we drive by, the quietest places in some respects on earth. Where the fact that because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the death of Jesus and the sinless nature of it, God has given assurance that we're all going to stand before him one day in some capacity to give an account of our life and how we've lived and how we've been obedient and what we've said and what we've done about the cross of Jesus. That's the significance of this miracle and the fact that, brothers and sisters, you ever hear Christians that talk about their salvation in terms of, well, I hope so. Maybe God is going to give me a place, maybe. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is God knows who you are. And if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and you have obeyed him and you've tried to live your life faithfully, yes, not perfect, but sanctified, but made holy and continually trying, your salvation is a place of confidence and assurance based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and based upon the fact that God says what happened in a limited capacity here on Calvary is going to happen universally. And for those of us that are alive and remain, there's confidence about that too. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, speaking about the resurrection of the dead. Thus we shall ever be with the Lord. There is a confidence that you can have in your salvation, that no matter what, brothers and sisters, as you follow the Lord, there's nobody that can take away from that. And as God offers commentary on the death of his son on this occasion, Brothers and sisters, we ought to rest in the fact that our future lies with the one who didn't stay in the grave. Our hope lies with the one who didn't stay in the grave. It's said that the darkest day of the Revolutionary War was on May 18th, 18 or 1780. The Northeast was covered with a darkness, a mysterious darkness there on that occasion and in fact you can go back in different places and read about the darkness of uh, places like hartford connecticut the state congress was in session at that time and there were a lot of people that when they saw this darkness that that uh, proceeded over over all the land a lot of them dropped to their knees immediately and began to pray in fact colonel davenport was the speaker of the house at that occasion. And as members of Congress began to file out, thinking that this was the end of days, it turns out that it was actually forest fires that were uh, just north in Canada, and they were, they were covering the northeast with a lot, of, uh, a lot of dark smoke and blotting out the sun in a lot of cases. Colonel Davenport, the Speaker of the House, was there and, and trying to bring some semblance of order, said this, Gentlemen, the day of judgment is, is approaching or it's not. If it is, there's nothing we can do about it at this point. If it's not, I want to be found fulfilling my duty let's bring some candles and let's get back to business i think about our lives brothers and sisters and how sometimes throughout this world and throughout this life we have things that arrest our attention don't we we have moments like september 11th where it just stops us and causes us to think about the eternal where it stops us and causes us to think could this be the end What we ought to do, brothers and sisters, is go back to Calvary and look at what arrested those people's attention on that occasion. Because our God is so great that he will display his power through his miracles here on Calvary. And yet he will not force your hand to be obedient to him. But the truth of the matter is, even if you have never obeyed Christ in this life, you will acknowledge him as Lord. That every knee should bow and every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. Every knee shall bow and every sh- tongue shall confess. Romans chapter 14 verse 10. And as we're arrested this morning based upon this lesson and thinking about the miracles and what those things spoke about, what God spoke about with regard to Jesus, I hope you're thinking about your spiritual condition I hope you're thinking about how you're walking right with the Lord, because if you're not, brothers and sisters, you do not want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. Jesus died so that you don't have to face that. Jesus died so that you could be the beneficiary of the blood that he shed on the cross, and that you could be drawn near to God, and that you could live every day for him with a confident assurance and hope, no fear of the future. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Let's stand and sing our invitation song.